From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. In this case, Occidental wanted to extract, explore and extract oil from oil land in Colombia. And the UWA decided that this was something that they did not want and could not tolerate. So they threatened to commit collective suicide. Welcome back to Season 10 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. On today's episode of Takeoffs and Landings, comparative law scholar Pablo Rueda Saiz delves into his research on the transnational campaign to prevent oil exploration and extraction in the indigenous land of Colombia. Let's go to Charlton Copeland, Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, with the interview. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for joining us on this episode of Takeoffs and Landings, um, which gives me the opportunity to talk to professors here at the University of Miami Law School about their uh, forthcoming and recently published work. This is a forthcoming paper by my colleague, uh, Pablo Rueda Saiz, titled Targets, Fields and Tactics, Multi-Institutional Legal Mobilization in the Campaign of the UWA People in Colombia. Pablo, I want to begin by giving you an opportunity to give the listeners uh, some insight on the underlying campaign. What did it involve? Basically, this was a campaign that the UWA people and many of their supporters in Colombia and throughout the world carried out to prevent oil extraction from UWA land in Colombia. Now, Many people uh, are familiar with the cases, for example, of um, the Achuar, Shuar, and other indigenous groups uh, against Chevron Texaco in Ecuador that was litigated in Ecuador and which ended up with a $9 billion award for the, um, the Achuar, the indigenous people, and then ended up with a RICO charge against one of the lawyers. Um, And also, some people might be familiar with the case of the Shuar people in Peru against Occidental Petroleum. Um, Those two cases of reparations. Now, the case of the Ua people was like... Can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, sure. Were those reparations the result of litigation? Yes, correct. So those were the result of litigation, as I mentioned, in the case of the Chevron case. It was reparations for a series of oil wells that formerly Texaco, that was then bought by uh, Chevron, um, had not closed well. And the same thing happened with Occidental in Peru. This was different. In this case, Occidental wanted to extract, explore and extract oil from oil land in Colombia. And the UWA decided that this was something that they did not want and could not tolerate. So they threatened to commit collective suicide at the beginning. And that's why they went big in the news throughout the world. And... Um, Initially, they litigated 
in Colombia, then they use different judicial and quasi-judicial venues, forums. And what were the results of that litigation? Did that litigation not yield the results that they that they sought? So it's interesting because it did and it did not. So they won the cases, most of them, uh, but their their victories were only partial and only temporary. Um, so then they decided to change their strategy completely. They decided to target the oil companies directly. And they decided to mobilize the law, but mobilize it in a very different way. Now, can I ask you one question? Sure. The litigation that preceded the targeting, was that litigation aimed at the state as the entity that had essentially approved this oil extraction? Correct. So it basically aimed at attacking the environmental license and the operational license for the oil companies. Uh, that's what the U.S. wanted and their supporters wanted. And, and that did that look like the litigation that had taken place in Ecuador and Peru? No, it was very different because litigation, again, litigation in Ecuador and Peru wanted to obtain reparations. And so it was actually against those private entities. Correct. Yes. Okay. Correct. So in that respect, they're very different types of cases, mm -hmm. even though they're all litigation, transnational litigation against oil companies, um, or they involve in transnational litigation against oil companies. Um, but in this case, what they wanted was to prevent oil exploration and extraction. So um, initially it was domestic. They went all the way up to the, you know, apex courts in Colombia. But then they decided as the campaign became transnational, they decided to change strategies somewhat. And also they were forced to change their strategies as well. And they were forced because, as one of the oil executives mentioned, um, oil executives also kind of learn from NGOs. And oil companies learn from NGOs. So what oil executives successfully did was to use the same tools that NGOs used, but they used them against them. So they went to, um, whereas the NGOs were going to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, the oil companies decided to go to a different organ of the Organization of American States to prevent uh, the litigation campaign before. So this is really interesting. So so the oil companies said, well, we're going to we're, we're going to take advantage of jurisdictional conflicts, as it were. No, not exactly. Not exactly that. We're basically going to do the same thing that the UA already did. But we're going to do it in our favor, and we're going to no, try but did to that, control. Did that the mean process. doing it in different forum, a slightly different forum? So a slightly different forum within the same international organization. So the 
will appeal to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, which is an organ of the Organization of American States. Mm -hmm. And the oil companies appealed to the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, who also happened to be a former Colombian president. And they said, hey, we want to resolve this conflict. Um, we want to do something about it. But they also wanted, and you know, oil executives were transparent about this, we also wanted to frame the issue in a way that was convenient for us. Now, they knew that they were not directly involved in litigation because litigation in the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and the Inter-American system can only be against states. Mm -hmm. So the companies were formally off the hook. However, it was inconvenient for them because it was a huge reputational risk for them. Help me understand where, in what forum did the earlier litigation take place in, in Ecuador and Peru? Oh, so in Ecuador and Peru? Mm -hmm. So in, they both started in the U.S. Okay. Oddly enough. So what's strange, what's different between those two cases, the Ecuadorian case and the Peruvian case, is that in the Ecuadorian case, the federal courts say, well, this case should be litigated in Ecuador because it's more convenient mm -hmm. for it to be litigated in Ecuador. You have the evidence there. Everything's over there. In the case of Peru, the same thing happened. Mm -hmm. The oil company, in that case, Occidental, asked the same, made the same request to the court. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can litigate this case in the U.S., in the federal courts. But along the way, these these oil companies are becoming more sophisticated about the ways in which they're going to, in 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 multiple institutional settings, push back against this 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 deployment of litigation uh, in, 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 in 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 the international and transnational context. Correct. So they are very sophisticated, and some of the most interesting interviews that I conducted were with oil executives. So. Once the UA people begin to realize that this forum is becoming more complicated, less advantageous, what sorts of tactics are they employing? So instead of resorting to human rights law, uh, they started resorting to corporate law. One of the things that they did at the, at, the, at the middle of the campaign was that they purchased shares of Occidental Petroleum which is one of the three companies that was involved in the joint venture for exploration in their land. And, you know, initially they started protests in front of the headquarters, but then afterwards, and they didn't let them into the headquarters of Occidental. Mm -hmm. But then since they had purchased shares, right. they let them in. Of so, course. I wanna, so I want to stop right there because I want to I get actually into the meat of this paper. Okay. You set up a kind of theoretical framework that um, suggests that among the non-litigative options that social movements engage in, in terms of that, that also fall under the umbrella of legal mobilization, are options that look like uh, a kind of what you call frame disruption, 
right? That you, and, and I take that in some sense to mean that these social movement organizations are enlarging the scope of conflict, right? That they, that they want to um, dislodge these oil companies as the experts and sort of contest that with some other set of norms and values. And alongside that, you seem to also say that they might alternatively embed themselves inside of the target's field frame and contest their behavior on those grounds. Could you explain the difference, that that choice? Sure. Um, So this all has to do with field theory, which is one... Um, approach to the theory of organizations. It starts with a very simple assumption with respect to society, Mm -hmm. which is the power in society is not in one single entity. It's not only in the state. Power is dispersed in society. And we don't all share the same kinds of values, norms, and rules by which we all abide. Mm -hmm. Contrary to that, society is divided into fields, and each field has a different set of rules, norms, values, actors that matter more or less, Mm -hmm. um, depending on the field. Now, those fields are not self-contained. They're not isolated. Those fields intersect with each other. But still... Some actors matter more in certain fields than in others. So, for example, in the human rights field, Amnesty International or Human Rights um, Watch matter much more than, say, BP. Mm -hmm. In the corporate field, however, BP matters a lot more than Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. And BP is able to set the standards of the industry as a whole. So, normally, when... Entities such as Amnesty International want to hold BP accountable. What they do is that they try to use the norms, the rules and the values in their own human rights field to make them accountable. So why does why in this context are the UWA people saying and I don't want to use this word and I want you to push back abandoning in some sense the human rights frame for. The corporate frame. Yes, that's a very good question. Because in many cases, um, companies are immune to whatever happens in the human rights field. What is that? Why? They don't care. Meaning they don't care about their reputations? Well, because their reputation is not very much affected by human, you know, by lawsuits, for example, or by complaints, you know, like one more company accused of violating human rights, one more company accused of violating, violating environmental standards. However, meaning when the executives are doing that earnings call, no one's going to ask a question no one. about what's going on in the inter-American. And if the shareholder value is going up, there is no, there's very little way to affect that. So that's one of the issues. The other issue is, has to do with this specific company and the fact that this specific company has no brands. Mm-hmm. 
That was very important in this case, because one of the ways in which shaming works is by targeting brands. And this is accidental. And this is accidental. Accidental doesn't. Which I'd never heard of. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's huge. So, but you don't see gas stations called Occidental. You don't see that. Everything that Occidental sells, it sells to other companies. So, and so, right, sh shaming works in the retail context, right? Exactly. Just, you got to be on the ground exactly. in order to feel that. That's really interesting. Go on. I'm sorry. So, 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 what they, what the activists decided to do was to target instead many of the other actors that were involved in the field of these oil companies. In other words, those actors that really do matter. In the interest of time, because this is, we could talk, I want to ask you two questions. One, what are the risks when social movements decide not simply to embed themselves in other field frames, but particularly inside of corporate field frames? And then two, to draw us out, um, what are the lessons for scholarship and our learning on social movements. Okay, so with respect to the first one, I think that um, there is a huge risk. And part of it is that somehow law becomes bastardized into this conception or uh, analysis of risk. So it's not the violation of human rights per se that matters, but rather whether that means a risk for shareholder value. Mm. And if it doesn't, then human rights don't matter. That it always has to That's translate into that. Language. Exactly. Because once you enter their frame, it's their rules. So that's one of the risks, right. one of the huge risks. Right. Now, as for our understanding of social movements, I think two lessons are important. The first one has to do with the fact that legal mobilization is not exclusively litigation and that the state is not the only actor that can foster significant social change. And then the third one would be that the notion of legal opportunity structures or political opportunity structures are not this monolith. You know, if you think about the state, the, the state, the state changes very slowly and that doesn't allow for creativity and tactics. It doesn't allow for tactical innovation. Whereas if you look at different types of targets and different types of institutions, and if you see this world as being segmented into fields, then you realize that social movements can be much more creative in the use of their tactics. I'm wondering what the impact is on the, the tactics that social movements then ultimately deploy when they're engaging the state, meaning does their engagement with these type of, of institutions impact what they think about and the range of responses they have to the state when they go back to confronting the state. Yet, without a doubt. I mean, among other things, one of the issues that I focused on was political economy of oil in a place like Colombia. And the state depends a lot for their revenue, for their, you know, providing basic services um, on oil. 
Um, and because of that dependence, that creates certain kind of relationship with oil companies. So if social movements start targeting oil companies, they're able to impact the state as well. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, this is a forthcoming article by uh, my colleague, Pablo Rueda Saiz. Uh, I hope that when it comes out, you, you enjoy it as much as I have. Thanks so much. Thank Pablo. you very much. Charles. Thanks for joining us for season 10 of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Azadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by Sneaker Law and Miami Law for the Art of the Sneaker Deal, a case study competition and conference, March 2nd and 3rd on the campus of the University of Miami. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.